0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. According to you, Lord Christ. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the sake of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I had these family friends uh, when I was a kid, and they all grew up in Bend, and they were all super adventurous, and the opposite of me, they were not afraid of anything. They were into all kinds of sports and They ended up doing a bunch of search-and-rescue stuff, and one of their sons, when he grew up, became one of the top-rated cross-country skiers and biathletes in the world. He would consistently place in the top five in world competitions. But when it came to the Olympic tryouts, a curious thing happened. His coach waxed his skis wrong, and this guy that I had known as a child didn't even place, and his Olympic dreams were lost because it would be another four years and he'd be too old, and that was it. This one thing that his coach did cost him his dreams. It seems to me that a lot of us who've been in the church for some time tend to think of the Holy Spirit if we think of him at all as some kind of coach, where we still have to go out and do the work, but he's kind of helping us along, and hopefully he's not like my friend's coach and screwing things up for us too much and making it more difficult. And I think that if we view him like that, then we're left feeling a little bit like Philip in our gospel text, like we're always sort of missing something, that there's something more that we haven't quite latched onto. This evening we are celebrating the great mystery of the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit is such that if you are in Christ through faith and baptism, then you have already been given everything you need to live a life of following Jesus. You have already been given everything you need. While the gift of the Spirit to the Church is indeed something to celebrate, something that brings deep joy, I think even for us long-time Christians, if we were to post about our relationship to the Spirit on Facebook, I think we'd check the It's Complicated box, right? And it's not just complicated because He's so mysterious and there's so many different expressions of Christianity that understand him so differently. I think he's partially complicated because of passages like our gospel text. Jesus is going out of his way to tell us that those who believe in him are going to do greater works than he has done and can ask for anything in his name and he will do it. And he repeats that promise. Now I don't know about you, But I look around and that seems empirically almost entirely false. Jesus went around healing people instantaneously, raised people from the dead, cast out demons, preached the gospel to large crowds, and then fed them all out of just one tiny little sack lunch. And in my own life, apart from some weird potential demon stuff in high school, I've never seen any of that. And what's odd is that Jesus' statements about asking anything in his name and it being done and how his followers will do greater things than him, these promises are made in the context of him comforting his disciples about his departure, which we celebrated last week in the Feast of the Ascension. But again, these words aren't exactly comfortable sometimes, are they? Instead, they can call up trouble and ironically cause us to do the very thing that Jesus is rebuking Philip for doing— demanding a different, flashier spirituality, a connection to the divine that has fireworks, a pillar of fire, something we can really grab onto, rather than a God in flesh who wears the same clothes that we do. So what are we to make of Jesus' promises, and how are we to experience the peace that he declares to us? And what could it mean that the Spirit... Is a paraclete, a comforter, an advocate, a guide, and a counselor given to the church? In order to start even beginning to answer those questions, or perhaps in order to ask them in a better frame, I think we need to take a closer look at the lives of the apostles, the lives of the men that Jesus is talking to in our gospel text. In many ways, this first generation of disciples did do greater works than Jesus. Their first revival saw 3,000 people come to repentance and faith in the name of Christ. Just the shadow of Peter could heal the sick. Demons were cast out. The dead were raised. But here again, we can run into problems, can't we? It's very easy for us to fetishize parts of the storyline of Acts, whether or not we're open to the idea that these sorts of miracles are still happening today, we look back in awe upon these flashy moments, almost to the exclusion of telling the other parts of the story. We all know about Acts 2 and 3, huge revival, right? This is what, this is what preachers love to talk about, 3,000 people coming to faith all at once, In Acts chapter 4, just after the coming of the Holy Spirit, like a wind that shook the house, and the disciples are all speaking in tongues, and the 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, the leaders of the church are thrown into jail for the night, and they're then called before the Jewish council and told to stop preaching the gospel, and after being threatened further, they're released, and they immediately go out preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, the fledgling church is disturbed greatly by the insincere liars, Ananias and Sapphira, who lie to the Spirit and are struck dead. A short time later, the apostles are arrested again, and again are called before the Jewish council, and again are threatened, and again are told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And though the Jewish leaders wanted to kill them, they were restrained and only flogged them mercilessly. In Acts 6 and 7, Stephen, a newly ordained deacon for whom I am named, was seized, falsely charged with blasphemy, and then dragged violently out of the city where his flesh and bone were mutilated and crushed as he was pelted by rock after rock, crying out with his dying breath for God to forgive his murderers. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison, and the disciples are scattered about the entire region. In Acts 12, Herod has the Apostle James executed with the sword and then seizes Peter as well. Peter is kept in prison, being guarded 24-7, and the whole church just keeps on praying, and he's miraculously freed. But Herod was so mad, he executed the guards because he thought they had let him go. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are persecuted for their preaching in Antioch. In Acts 14, there is a plot against Paul's life and he and Barnabas flee Iconium. Paul and Barnabas go about preaching the gospel in the city that they flee to, but there Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. And miraculously, he gets back up and goes back into the same city. In Acts 15, we are met with the first threat of division to Christ's body, the church. It almost fractures. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are attacked by a riotous crowd, stripped and beaten with rods, and after being flogged severely, were thrown into prison. In Acts 17, the city of Thessalonica is stirred into a riot at Paul's preaching of the gospel, and he is dragged before the leaders, and the whole city is in turmoil, and he escapes in the middle of the night. In Acts 18, Paul is again dragged before political leaders in Corinth, and charged with treason. While the Roman leader withholds judgment, Paul's enemies violently beat the leader of the synagogue out of anger. In Acts 19, there's another riot in Ephesus. In Acts 20, another plot is made against Paul's life, and he flees. In Acts 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem. The city is thrown into chaos. He's seized as the crowd is trying to kill him by beating him to death when they are stopped by Roman soldiers who then arrest Paul. In Acts 22, after Paul preaches the gospel to the crowd in Jerusalem that was just trying to kill him, they scream, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live, and Paul is ordered to be flogged until he reveals he has Roman citizenship. In Acts 23, more than 40 men are involved in a plot to murder Paul, but it's found out, and the Romans who hold him captive send him to another place for trial. And after being held in prison and brought to trial before multiple leaders, Paul is sent to Rome. But in Acts 27, on his way to Rome, Paul is shipwrecked, and the soldiers decide to kill all the prisoners to keep them from escaping. But the centurion spared Paul's life. Paul and the crew with him wash up on the shore of Malta and Paul eventually goes to Rome and in Acts 28, he is kept under house arrest for more than two years and the Acts of the Apostles ends. Church tradition tells us that Paul was martyred, that Peter was crucified upside down, that Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Most of the apostles were likely martyred or died in exile. Paul sums up his own story quite succinctly. We are hard pressed on every side, he says, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Perplexed, but not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. You see, we have to read Jesus' promises to his followers in the context of his own life. The man who just said, you will do greater works than me and ask for whatever you want in my name and I will do it is soon to be sweating blood in the garden praying to his father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. All of which, of course, means that praying in Jesus' name isn't some magic hocus-pocus. You can't just ask for whatever you want and tack his name onto the end of it and expect for it to come true. No, praying in Jesus' name, asking for things in the name of Jesus, is a way of submerging yourself down into him. It's a means of aligning your desires with God's, aligning your will with God's. And spoiler alert, God's will for those that are in Christ is what Paul just said, to carry about in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. That's what it is. You see, life in the spirit age is utterly paradoxical because we have been given everything that we need but not so that we can have all of the power and health and wealth that we could desire but so that we could truly and really enter into the sufferings of Christ this is what Paul says in his letter to the Romans he says now if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ that is incredible comma if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He goes on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He goes on a few sentences later to say that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. In the same way, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. In Christ giving you his Spirit, so that you would remain knit together as part of his mystical body. He has truly and really given you already everything that you need to live your life as his follower. The Spirit has been given. The question for us is, will we refuse to share in Christ's suffering in an attempt at getting happiness on our own terms? the happiness of the world which fades and wears out into nothingness? Or will we embrace the paradox, the joy that feels like carrying around a death? Will we, through the groanings of the Spirit, truly learn to pray in Jesus' name, having our hearts, our desires, our wills, our entire being aligned to his will? My bet is that in so doing we would find the one thing that our world cannot get anywhere she looks, and that is joy. It's true joy. In the midst of being given over to death for Jesus' sake, we can have real joy. Because we know that in embracing his death and his suffering on our behalf and entering into his sufferings. His life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. And the majesty and glory of God will actually burst forth from within us. The apostles and the disciples worked incredible miracles in the name of Christ. And I know that some of you are are waiting for miracles in your life. I know it. And I'm not trying to get you to stop asking for Christ to give you those things. That's not what this is about. It's about sitting with him in the tension of unresolved, unanswered, potentially what feels like unheard prayer, and allowing that suffering to work in you a Christ-likeness so that you can find joy and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not easy. And it's not something that, that you can do alone. It requires a community. It requires people around you to know what you're disappointed about, what you feel like hasn't been given to you in Christ. You have to share that stuff. You can't just keep it in. And as you do and we gather around you and sit in that tension with you, we too can be filled with the same joy. That's part of what it means to be part of one body. Friends, the Spirit has been given the Comforter who leads us into all truth. That doesn't mean our life is necessarily going to get any easier, but let us go forth from this place rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Alleluia. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.